0: Good morning, church. I hope you're having a wonderful Sunday, and I hope that you have the peace of the Lord and your families well. Let's go to a word of prayer this morning. Father God, we thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for your strength, who fully understands our frailties and fears that we face in our daily lives. So I come to you, Father, to ask you for abundant grace and never-failing strength, so that we may face life difficulties with confidence, knowing that your grace is sufficient to deal with every situation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in his name we pray this morning. Church, the title of my message this morning is The Sovereignty of God and His Goodness. The Sovereignty of God and His Goodness. Today our nation is facing something that has circled the globe, the coronavirus, and it has created fear, confusion, doubt, questions everywhere. This disease has been caused by a new virus, the likes of which we have never before seen during our lifetimes. It has been contracted by millions of people. Some have grown gravely ill and hundreds of thousands have already died. Governments all over the world have responded by restricting our travel time and imposing quarantines to limit human contact to slow down the contingent. Businesses, governmental agencies, and churches have embraced new technologies and implemented digital connections to avoid flesh and blood interaction. See, we don't know the final outcome of this, not just the physical outcome of the illness itself, but the implications that have hit everyone from an economic standpoint. Experts scramble to find effective means to treat the illness and looking for ways to anticipate the spread of the infection all the implications of this is very frightening to people because it's taking life. It's taking life out of their control. So when private or public calamity hits, it's always calls for faith as a Christian. Confidence, trust in God, despite our fears, our anxiety, our stress. In the book of Matthew, records that Jesus' disciples face a test of their own, their faith. And on the Sea of Galilee, as they sailed him across the lake, a violent storm came up, threatening to swamp the boat. They were amazed to discover their Lord fast asleep in the midst of this storm. So they shook him and tried to wake him up. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. That's a pretty normal reaction on impending disasters. We've all been there in the middle of our own private or public crises. We cry out in fear, at least inwardly. Lord, don't you care if we perish? How about saving us now? Save us. You see, Jesus did still the storm, rescuing the boatmen. But before he did that, he gently scolded them and said, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? A few chapters later, we read of a similar incident on on the sea. But this time, Peter is the one in trouble. In the middle of a stormy nightmare, uh, nighttime crossing, that is, the disciples were frightened when they spotted this ghostly figure walking towards their boat on the wind-tossed waves. But then they heard this familiar voice, and it said, Take heart, heart it is I. Do not be afraid. And of course, to deform, Peter was impetuously challenging Jesus. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. From Christ's invitation, Peter took that one step. And then another on the waves, and all of a sudden he started walking on the water. But when he saw the mighty wind, he began to sink and cry out in alarm for Jesus. Jesus stretched out his hand and pulled him out of the water. And he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter doubted. Peter doubted for the same reason you and I doubt. When we're faced with uncertainty and distress, we wonder what's going to become of us. Sometimes our fears can be overwhelming. We're fearful in the face of tragedy and the unknown because we never passed this way before. You see, church, fear is a perfectly normal response to these situations. And truth be told, our faith isn't as strong as it could be. Like the disciples in the middle of the storm and like Peter sinking in the waves. But here's the thing about faith. What matters isn't the amount Of faith we have. It's the object of our faith. The Lord, the Lord in whom we trust, is what matters. When we call out to him, even in fear or doubt, he's there to hear and to save, though it's true that his remedy may not match our expectations. Think of Peter on the waves. You see, Peter's faith may have been small, but he had a great and mighty Lord. His faith may have been weak, but the hand of Jesus was strong to save. He will save you too, no matter how small your faith. You can count on Him to hear your anguish, your cry, and answer in His own time and way. This morning, church, we'll be looking at the goodness and sovereignty of God. Our lesson this morning is from the book of Psalms, Psalms expresses worship. Throughout its many pages, Psalms encourages its readers to praise God for who He is and what He has done. The Psalms illuminate the greatness of our God, affirms His faithfulness to us in times of trouble, and reminds us of the absolute centrality of His Word. Let's look at Psalms of the 23rd chapter. I want you to notice first that this Psalms begins and ends with... The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. And it ends with, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This psalm, this psalm is about God. It's all about his goodness to you. Now, today I want us to look at the last verse. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's a promise. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's heaven, and that's future. Now, anytime you start worrying, you need to remember the last verse of Psalms 23. If you are diff- having a difficult time with what's going on today in our country, and our world, and are uncertain about the future, you tend to get anxious about the future, worried, a little stressful about the future, You feel anxiety welling up within you over the future. You need to remember the last verse because this last verse tells us three reasons you never, never need to fear the future if you're a believer. You never need to fear the the future because of the three things that tells us in the last verse. Number one, because God's goodness is watching over me. I don't need to fear the future or stress over because God's goodness is watching over me. The Bible says, surely goodness will follow me all the days of my life. Do you know that God is in his goodness, is always paying attention to you? Did you know that you, you never had a second of your life God was not watching you? God is always paying attention to you. Why? Because he created you to love you. And he is a good God. Amen? Psalms chapter 145, verse 20 says this The Lord watches over all who love him. God's goodness is watching over you. He doesn't miss any details. Not only does he watch over you, he actually protects you. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 91, verse 11, it says this God orders his angels, his angels to protect you wherever you go. Anybody can bring good out of good. But you know what? God's specializing in bringing good out of bad. And that's the great promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says, We know that all that happens to us is working for our good. It doesn't say it's all good. It says it's working for our good. If this is a promise, if we love God and are fitting into his plans all things do not work together for good for everybody. If you're going in the opposite direction of God, if you're ignoring God's plan for your life, if you're not trying to live in God's love, all things are not working for good. They're all working for bad in your life. But this is a promise to those who love God. For those who really want to go God's way, who want to follow God's purpose, he says, okay, if you really want my will in your life, Even the bad things that happen to you, I will bring good even out of that. Now, the second reason that you never need to fear the future, no matter what's happening. First, because God's goodness is watching over me. The second reason is this, because God's grace is working in me. God's grace is working in me. One of the best known definitions of grace is only three words. God's unmerit favor. A.W. Tozer expanded that and says, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. God's grace is working in me, while goodness is working around me, and it's watching out for me. God's grace is working in me at that moment. Grace, grace is not a dormant, or abstract quality, but a dynamic, active, working principle. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and instruction. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. It is not some kind of heavenly blessing that lies idle until we appropriate it. Grace is God's sovereign initiative to sinners. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. The Bible says, surely, not just goodness, but mercy. Mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Mercy is grace in action. That's what it is when I say God's grace is working in me. I'm talking about his mercy. It's grace in action. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 10, chapter 60, verse 10 says this, I will have mercy on you, Through my grace. When God says grace, goodness, and mercy are going to follow you all the days of your life, what's the difference between God's goodness and God's mercy? In the first place, God's goodness is when God gives me what I don't deserve. What I don't deserve. That's goodness. God's goodness. That's His grace. I don't deserve all the blessings I have in life, and you don't either. The air you just breathed, did you deserve that? The fact that your heart just took a beat, do you deserve that? Most of the things in your life are simple, gracious gifts. And everyone you have in your life, everything you have is from God. Grace, church, grace is when God gives me what I don't deserve. Grace is not a one-time event in the Christian experience, no. No. See, we stand in grace. Romans 5, verse 2. The entire Christian life is driven and empowered by grace. It is God. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Peter said, we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Question. What's mercy? Mercy is when God doesn't give me what I deserve. All the stuff, all the ways I've been mean, I've been wrong, I've sinned, I failed, I've made mistakes, I've been self-centered. I deserve punishment for that. I deserve discipline for that. Retribution for that If God gave you everything you deserved If he gave you everything you deserved You wouldn't take your next breath Grace and mercy Or goodness and mercy God gives me what I don't deserve Mercy God doesn't give me what I do deserve Don't deserve that is He says both of these are going to follow me They are going to follow me Because God is a good God And I can expect both his provision and his pardon. Question, why do you need mercy this morning? Why do I need mercy this morning? Because we're all imperfect. We all make mistakes. We all sin. We're all in a broken world. We don't always do the right thing, and we even know that. When we don't always do the right thing. I need forgiveness all the time you need forgiveness all the time forgiveness forgiveness comes from the fountain of mercy we cannot think of mercy without its expression in forgiveness and we cannot think of forgiveness without its source mercy but forgiveness is not the only expression of god's mercy what does mercy Flow out of love. Love. And why has God been merciful? But God is being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. In which he loved us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Do you see the sequence, church? See, God loves, and love is what? Merciful. And mercy is forgiving among many other things. You see, you need God's mercy all the time. Aren't you glad that it says God's goodness and God's mercy will follow me all the days? It doesn't say God's justice will follow me all of my life. Now, for a moment, let's assume that all men are guilty, of course, of sin in the sight of God from the mass of humanity, okay? God solemnly decides to give mercy to some of them. What do the rest get? They get justice. The saved, what do they get? They get mercy. And the unsaved get justice. Nobody gets injustice. God doesn't follow you with his justice. Did you hear what I just said? He doesn't follow you with his justice. He follows you with what? He follows you with his mercy. Why? Because He is a good God. Psalms 103, Psalms 103 lists a number of ways that shows His mercy. Here's what it says in Psalms 103, verses 2 to 13. I will not forget the glorious things that God does for me. He forgives. He forgives all my sins. He heals me. He ransoms me from hell. That's mercy. His grace, his grace grants us a way into heaven. That's grace. He surrounds me with loving kindness. That's mercy. He fills my life with good things. Grace brings blessing. He is merciful and tender towards those who don't deserve it. Church, what is that? That's mercy. He's slow to to anger, that is. And you know what? I'm glad for that. And that's called what? That's mercy. He never bears a grudge. Aren't you glad for that one? Now, because God's mercy is following you every day of your life, it means you can come to God with any problem, any screw up, any mess up, any fault, any failure, anything. You know why? Because God has a 24-hour drop-in service because his mercy is constantly what following you. There's never a moment he's not showing mercy to you. You can always come to him, no matter what you're going through. That takes away what? Your fear, your stress, your anxiety. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. We can come, we can come before God's throne this is, the, this is talking about prayer, uh, where we can receive mercy and grace, mercy and goodness to help us when we need it. Now, there's a third reason you don't need to fear the future. God's goodness is watching over me. God's grace is working in me. And here's the big enchilada. Number three, God's glory is waiting for me. God's glory is waiting for me. God's glory is waiting for me, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's heaven, church. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's that little word, that little word that connects today and tomorrow. Even after you've lived a life of blessing here on this earth, you know what? It's not the end. Friends, this psalm is building to a crescendo. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the big ending. That means I don't have to fear death. And that's the number one fear people have. Because you know what? Death is not the end for the believer. It's a transition. It's a transfer. We're going to heaven. God saves the best for last. If you love and know Jesus And he's your Lord and shepherd and savior. It gets even better because even if I have a tough life on this earth, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever where there's no more sorrow. There's no more suffering, no more sin, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more problems, no more pain, no, no more pressure. It's unbelievable, church, with Jesus. It gets even better. When you look at the heavens, the Bible says the heavens, what? Declare the glory of God. Psalms 19:1. Look at all the stars. God is a pretty big God. God's pretty powerful, isn't he? You look at the sun and the moon. When you look at of the tens of thousands of plant varieties, of animal varieties, a species that God has created, you see the glory of God. That our God is creative. When you see the beauty of a sunrise and a sunset and a waterfall, you see what the glory of God. The glory of God, we we see all glimpses of that here, even on this broken planet. There's a lot of beautiful stuff on this planet because of God's glory. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15, it says, Lord, look upon us from heaven where you live in your holiness and glory. God's complete glory is in heaven, unhindered by anything. And then the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, when Stephen was the first guy who was killed for his faith, for following Christ, he was the first Christian martyr as they were stoning him, throwing stones at him. And he was dying in Jerusalem. And it says as Stephen was dying, he looked up towards heaven. And he got a vision as he's dying in the final moments. And he saw what? He saw God's glory. Amen? The Bible tells us when Jesus was resurrected, it says Jesus returned to what? His glory in heaven. John chapter 20 12 verse 16 and one day one day you will too you're going to see God's glory Romans chapter 9 verse 23 says this God wanted to reveal his abundant glory he wanted to reveal his abundant glory God wanted to show how loving how good how kind how merciful he is God wanted to show it and so he, he wanted to show his abundant glory, which is poured out on us. That's you, and that's me, who are objects of his mercy. You, my friends, are an object of God's mercy. As a woman or a man, you are an object of God's mercy. He doesn't give you what you deserve. God wanted to reveal his abundant glory which poured out on us, who are the objects of his mercy and whom he has prepared in advance. He's prepared you in advance. He's already prepared this, okay? This is talking about you, whom he had prepared in advance to receive his glory. What I just shared with you are the antidotes to your three greatest fears. Church, if you understand them, If you fully grasp what has been taught this morning, you will be fearless. You will have a new level of confidence in your life. You certainly won't be anxious, stressed out about the future because what? God's goodness and grace and glory are all involved in your future. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning of our message, we're facing a worldwide pandemic, the likes of which we have never seen before in our lifetimes. We have seen marches on the streets for justice and a call for change. Businesses are slowly opening up and closing. Worst case, some of them are shutting for good. There's unemployment. Our economy is fragile. As a new school year approaches, schools have to create a new environment of teaching and learning, while some parents are fearful of sending their children to school. With the presidential election on the horizon, we see that no matter, matter what side of the political p- p- side of the coin you may be, we're all in this together, some way or another. You know what? It's a very difficult time, challenging time in our country's history as well in the world. The coronavirus is called because it's visible, visibly resembles a crown. In Latin, it's Corona. A crown is a symbol of power and authority, and certainly this virus has power over us humans. It is invisible to the naked eye, yet just think about what it has forced many millions and billions of us to do and not to do. So no matter how dismal things look, and at times hopeless, church, there is hope. There is hope found in another corona, the crown of thorns that was forced on Jesus' head at his trial before his execution. And know this, church, and know this, that everything that's going on, number one, our God is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over all. Our Lord, you are great mighty majestic magnificent glorious and sovereign over all the sky and the earth you lord have dominion and exalt yourself as the ruler of all you are the source of wealth and honor you rule over all you possess strength and might to magnify and give strength to all first chronicles chapter 25 29 verse 11 and 12. You know what? It matters little what I think about the coronavirus or about anything else that is occurring today for that matter. But it matters, church. It matters forever what God thinks. You know what? He is not silent. He is not silent about what he thinks or what's occurring around the world because number two, know this, God's word is a solid foundation. God's word is a solid foundation. God's voice is granite. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Lord, the word of the Lord remains forever. First Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. Jesus said that God's word in Scripture cannot be broken. John 10 35. What God says is true. And righteous altogether, Psalms nineteen nine. His word, his word is therefore a firm foundation for life. You have founded your testimonies forever, Psalms chapter one nineteen, verse one fifty two. Listening to God and believing Him is like building your house on a rock, not sand. Matthew chapter seven verse 24. His word is the kind of counsel, is the kind of counsel you want to heed. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 29, 28, 29. His understanding, church, is beyond measure. Psalms 147, verse 5. When he gives counsel, when he gives counsel about the coronavirus virus, it is firm, unshakable, lasting. The counsel of the Lord stands what forever. Psalms thirty three eleven, and his way is perfect. Second Samuel chapter twenty two verse thirty one. Therefore, his words are sweet and precious. More to be desired are they than gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalms chapter 19, verse 10. Indeed, they are the sweetness of everlasting life. Amen? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 68. In the best and worst of times, church, God's words bring unshakable peace and joy. It brings unshakable peace and joy. The prophet Jeremiah declares this, your words, Lord, became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. And church, and mark this, the sweetness of God's word is not lost, is not lost in this historic moment of bitter providence. Not if we have learned the secret of sorrowful yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. The secret, be, stay with me, church, the secret of sorrowful yet always rejoicing is this, in a nutshell, knowing that the same sovereignty that could stop the coronavirus yet doesn't is the very sovereignty that sustains the soul in it. More than sustains. It what? Sweetens. Sweetens with hope that God's purposes are kind, even in death, for those who trust Him. Amen? God. God is all-governing. He is all-wise. He is sovereign over the coronavirus. Saying that God is sovereign and He's all-governing means He is sovereign. His sovereignty means that He can do, and in fact, does do all All that He decisively decides to do and wills to do. I say decisively because God, in a sense, wills things. He does not carry through. He can express desires that He Himself chooses not to act on. In that sense, they are not decisive. But He Himself does not let such willing or desire rise to the level of of a performance. I'm going to give you an example, and just to consider this. Consider the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 32 and 33. Chapter 3, 32, 33 of Lamentations, and it says this. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men, he does not grieve us, church, but not from his heart. Excuse me, he does grieve us, but not from his heart. And I take it that to mean that there are aspects, parts of his character, his heart, that incline away from grieving us. Nevertheless, other aspects of his character dictate the holiness and righteousness, righteousness of grieving us. So when I say that God's sovereignty, sovereignty means that he can do, and in fact does do, all that he decisively will do to will do i mean there's no force there's no force outside himself that can thorn or frustrate his will do you like that he can't get frustrated and when he decides for a thing to happen guess what it happens or put it in another way everything happens because god wills it to happen as we ponder our future with a coronavirus or any life-threatening situations. James tells us how to think and speak. It says this, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James chapter 4 verse 15, James four fifteen. If he wills, we will live. If not, we won't. There are some who say that God is absent. There are some who say that God is hidden in the present world and its present events. Well, one of the most well-known facts about the book of Esther is the absence of God's name. But there is this glorious assurance theme that number three, that God is in control. God is in control. And to understand how Christ relates to the book of Esther And the uh, theological question to which speaks, one needs to appreciate how Christ is a simultaneous fulfillment, check this out, church, fulfillment of two different trajectories, two different trajectories. You see, Christ is the ultimate revelation of God's hidden presence in the world, because in the Old Testament, God is both present, and absent. God is present in a powerful and a personal way with Abraham. When Moses is tending his flocks in Midian, God speaks to him from within the burning bush. After delivering Israel from Egypt and bringing the people to Mount Sinai, God speaks directly to Moses from the mountain. And as the Old Testament unfolds, there is a gradual shift from presence to, to absence. It is as if God slowly disappears and recedes from involvement at historical processes. God is intimately, church, intimately involved and accessible to the first human beings. He walked in the Garden of Eden and the first couple can hear and understand his voice even after they sin. God comes looking for them and they're able to have this Actual conversation with him. God's presence slowly begins to withdraw. No pillar of cloud and fire, no more manna, no fantastic visible manifestations of glory, only some sporadic miracles here and there. But miracles become fewer and further between as well. Check this out, church. But now, Jesus. Jesus is the resolution of the tension that we're talking about. And he resolves the tension not by explaining the mystery of simultaneous presence and absence, but by embodying both of them at the same time. In Jesus, the hidden God is revealed, and the, and the revealed God is hidden. Jesus is the personal embodiment of God's presence made real within the world. And at the same time, the embodiment of our experience of God's seeming absent within the world. Then it is through him, church, through him and only through him that we are able to understand God's way in the world and with us. Church, the greatest the greatest demonstration of God's sovereignty was at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the human eye, the crucifixion appeared a total failure, a disaster. Human sin and wickedness were at their best and at their worst. But God was in control. Say, God is in control, church. And behind the scenes, God is in control. He was working out his eternal purposes. You see, church, our Savior's death and all its circumstances were according to God's prearranged plan for the achievement of our salvation. Amen? When our Lord appeared to be in human hands alone, his his eyes were focused upon the Father. And to quote one of the Messianic Psalms, which states, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. Amen. You see, church, God is always working out his purposes. And the assurance, this assurance, church, has practical repercussions. First, when nothing seems to be happening God is at work behind the scenes. Secondly, while often we appear to be in the hands of others and feel very much at their disposal, we are in God's hands. And thirdly, God is committed. God is committed to the preservation of His people. Amen? We are His purchase, possession, blood bought. He will never forsake us. We should rest in God's sovereignty. And finally, church, our peace concerning the future and all its happenings around us is found in the assurance that our king holds both of it and us in his hands. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, at our best moments, by your grace. We are not sleeping in Gethsemane. We are awake and listening to your son's prayer. He knows deep down that he must suffer, but in his perfect humanity, he cries out, If it is possible, let this cup pass. In the same way, we sense deep down that this pandemic is appointed in your wisdom for good. And necessary purposes. We too must suffer. Your son was innocent. We are not. Yet with him, in our less than perfect humanity, we too cry out, If it be possible, let this cup pass. Do quickly, O Lord, the painful, just, and merciful merciful work you have resolved to do, Lord. Do not linger in judgment, do not delay in your compassion. Remember the poor. Oh Lord, according to your mercy, do not forget the cry of the afflicted. Grant recovery, Lord, from this. Grant a cure. Deliver us, your poor, helpless creatures. From these sorrows, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you and go in peace.